And we are in a section right now in Lesson 3 on page 7 on communication. And in that list of resources, the book that I primarily recommend for communication is the one under that category, Communication, and it's titled War of Words. And so if you will take a look at, or if you will avail yourself of that, if you're interested in more information about this important issue of communication, then you can order it with the form that we have on the resource table, okay? Page 7, as we continue our study on parenting, and in these first several weeks, we are laying foundational issues before we get into the nitty-gritty of parenting a teenager or parenting an infant toddler or parenting one who's between 7 and 12. We've got lessons on all of that. But before we get to that, if you don't have these things straight, you won't be able to do that effectively. So if you're impatient, and no one has told me that they're impatient, they want to get right to that, I understand that, but please, uh, please be patient because I think the time is well spent in laying this foundation for how a home should run and what kinds of things should characterize a home, and then that will help you in the uh, upbringing of your children as well. So on page 7, we will be looking at, as you see at the top, Lesson 3, More Grace Spoken Here. So in Lesson 2, the title was Grace is Spoken Here in Our Home. It's about biblical communication, and we're continuing that in Lesson 3. Now, we have seen that the home is to be a community where three things uh, happen, or, or a community of three types, a learning community, a sociological community, and a redemptive community. It's a learning community. It's the primary place where children learn about themselves, about others, about God, about authority. It's to be a learning community. And a learning community is required for children because, as we saw back in Lesson 1, children are made, created by their God to be three things. They're made to be revelation receivers. We were all made, designed by God, to have the ability to receive his communication to us. And so we have the innate human ability to receive communication and to give communication. And we, God gives us that ability because God is a God who speaks. God is a God who reveals, makes known himself, his purposes for us, our, our issues, our problems, God talks to us about those things, makes them known. That's what we call revelation. And your children are to be revelation receivers, so they have to be taught God's revelation. So the home is to be a learning community. It's also to be uh, it's a learning community because children are revelation receivers and also because they were made to be interpreters. They have to be taught. They have to learn to interpret the world around them. When Adam and Eve were created, they came into a world, obviously, completely unknown to them. And God gave them the ability and, in fact, the instruction to discover this world that he made and their place uh, within it. And they were made to then interpret what they found and what they used uh, in God's world. But they had to interpret it according to God's framework, which is why the first point is so important, that we were made to be revelation receivers. Having received God's truth, now I can interpret his world accurately. Because he has told me about his world and why it's here and about himself and about myself and what my problem is and all of that. So we have to interpret God's world, but we have to interpret it through a framework. That framework comes from the place in which he has spoken his revelation in Scripture. So 
The home is to be a learning community because children are made to be revelation receivers and interpreters. And thirdly, that we are made to be worshipers. And I pointed out that Adam and Eve were made to worship God, but in disobeying God, that relationship that they enjoyed with God has been severed. And it has to be mended in order for us to become the worshipers that we were designed to be. Now, here's the problem, though. It's not, then, that after sin entered God's world through Adam and Eve and now through their progeny, us and our kids, it's not that we were worshipers and now we don't worship anything. Sin means we now worship other stuff. We now worship other people. So we're still worshipers. But we worship the wrong things and we worship the wrong persons. And your child was made to be a worshiper, but of course they were made to worship the true and living God. So they require the revelation that God has given about himself and about themselves so that they can be directed toward the worship that they were designed to render to to God. So the home is to be a learning community. It's also to be a sociological community because the home is the place where life occurs. And it's where you really learn what you're like because you're not in your Sunday best. You're not putting on the facade. It's what you're really like. And so you learn what you're like. And you learn what your siblings are like. And you learn what your parents are like in this society that is the family. And so out of life in the family comes information about me and my struggles and those that I'm living with and their struggles and how I need to handle my own shortcomings and their shortcomings and sins. That's what we mean by a sociological community. Because it involves sin on my part and on their part, the third thing is designed by God to be true of our families. It's to be a learning community, a sociological community, but thirdly, a redemptive community. And redemption means to make right what has gone wrong. And so in the home, God has designed that which is exposed about us and about those that we share that home with to be dealt with redemptively. And God has given information in his word about how we redeem, how we make right what has gone wrong because of sin in our relationships. And a key component of that redemption, making right what's wrong, involves our words, how we speak. The truth is you blow it. The truth is I blow it. Your kids blow it. We sin against each other. We sin very often in our words. We sin in our actions, of course, as well. But whatever the type of sin, our words are involved in redeeming that sin, in making it right. So words are a vehicle by which we sin, but they are also a vehicle by which sin is is reconciled. We're restored to each other, redeemed. And that's why, then, we're focusing in two full lessons on this very important issue of how we talk to each other in the home. In lesson three, then, you see the top of page seven is more grace spoken here. And we say in the last lesson, we looked at a number of factors that affect communication. It's not enough to simply avoid or, in biblical language, put off improper speech, but rather we're to practice or put on proper communication. Passivity and neutrality are sin. Therefore, we must actively pursue righteous communication. So let me say something about that. Remember last week I talked about Confucius? Uh, I'm sure you all remember that. I bet you were quoting it this past week to all your friends. 
But, you know, Confucius said, uh, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Jesus says in what we call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. And so people hear that. It sounds pretty much the same. And since Confucius came before Jesus, well, then Jesus must have copied off Confucius. And I pointed out that they sound the same, but they're actually profoundly different. Because Confucius is simply saying, do no harm. And so you could theoretically just sit in one place for the rest of your life, never communicate with anybody, never interact with anybody, and you've made Confucius happy. But Jesus says positively, it's not what you avoid doing, it's what you do. You actively, you do to others what you would have them to do unto you. So you cannot be passive about it. You cannot just sit in one place. You have to actively use the gifts and abilities that God has given, including in this case the ability to speak and communicate. You have to use that actively in the lives of those that God has placed in your circle. So I don't just get to not talk to you, avoid you. Uh, as we'll see, I don't just bite my tongue. You know, the truth of the matter is, if many of us bit our tongue every time we thought about saying something, we'd have bloody tongues all the time. You know, and so we just say, oh, I'll just bite my tongue. Well, it shouldn't be on your tongue to begin with. Because God goes deeper than even the words. He goes back to the thoughts and the attitudes from which those words proceed. So we are given this gift of communication that's be used to be used for God's good redemptive purpose, but I have to actively use it. It is not, in fact, it is sin for me to passively think that I can be neutral toward those that God has placed in my circle of influence. And so I say in the middle of that paragraph, passivity and neutrality are sin. We must actively pursue righteous communication. And here's an example of that in, in the Bible. The, the Ten Commandments. You know, you guys are familiar with the Ten Commandments, and uh, even if you couldn't name them all, you could come close. But you know that they are, uh, they are virtually all stated negatively. That is, they're all things you're not to do. You're to have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not lie, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, right? These are all things you're not to do. So for many people, Christianity is one big fat list of stuff you don't do. Well, there are a lot of things given in the Bible that you don't do. I mentioned in the first hour that there are not just ten commandments in your Old Testament, there are 613. And many of those 613 involve things you don't do. So people come... With, come away with this negative, and I mean that in the sense of negation, things you don't do, view of Christianity. But remember, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your soul. That's one of the commandments from the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. That's in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And from Leviticus chapter 18, Jesus has given these two commands from the Old Testament, both of which have something in common. There's, there, there isn't a not in there. It's love the Lord your God. It's love your neighbor. And if I love God, there's stuff I can't do. 
If I love God positively, then that necessitates there are some things I cannot do. I cannot use his name in vain. I cannot worship idols. I cannot have any other God before him. If I love my neighbor, there are some things that I cannot do. Steal from them. Murder. Lie. And so on. So all of the stuff I don't do is all because of what I'm positively attempting to do. You guys get that? That's what we're about. We're about positive holiness. Positive meaning what we do rather than what we avoid. There's lots of stuff we avoid, but the stuff we avoid is because of what we're trying to do. We need to teach our children that. We need to teach our our teenagers that as well. But when it comes to this issue of communication, then it's not just avoid saying something bad. It's positively saying something good. And so we come to the first point. We have to practice constructive speech. Notice Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. So there's a negative thing, something I don't do. Don't let this kind of communication come out of your mouth, but that's not good enough. You know, God could just put a period there. And many of us think that's enough. Let no, don't say anything bad. If you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. You know, we sometimes say, so we just, we we get this idea that I don't have to speak. But the truth is, I usually, if I work at it, and I'm going to deal with this in the notes, find something good to say about just about anyone. Not anyone, but just about anyone. And the command is, don't do this, but notice it goes on. There's not a period there. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up others according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. So the assumption is I avoid saying unwholesome things because I am saying constructive things that build up other people. Now, what does that mean? Let no unwholesome word proceed. I say in the notes there, the word that's translated unwholesome is not only foul language. So you read that and you think, okay, I can't, I got to stop swearing. I stop swearing at my kids. I got to stop swearing at work. I got to stop swearing at the drivers on the road. Uh, well, it includes that. It includes foul language, but it's not only that. The term refers to any word that tears down another. Unwholesome, translated unwholesome. The word translated unwholesome means any word that tears someone else down. The antidote, the answer to that is speech that builds up, is edifying, is constructive. So that's what we're commanded to do. It's not just avoid saying the bad thing, it is to say the good thing, the gracious thing. What do I have to cultivate in order for that to happen? Middle of page 7. I have to focus on the problem rather than on the per- person. There's a Latin phrase, I have it listed for you there, ad hominem. And so we sometimes engage in our homes in ad hominem attack. We're not dealing with the issue, we're dealing with you. And we're dealing with what a crumb you are. That's, that's, it's, and it's a Latin term that means to the person. And so when I talk in a way that's ad hominem, I am not speaking to the issue, I'm speaking at the person. I'm attacking the person rather than attacking the problem. Now, how do you know if you're doing this? Well, one way you'll know you're doing this is if you use you often in your communication in a negative way. You do this or you fail to do this, I'm pointing the finger at you. 
I'm engaging in this sort of ad hominem attack rather than the circumstance, the situation, the problem. This happens, it appears, whenever we get involved in, and then you go and describe it. You describe the problem rather than attacking the person. And if I'm going to engage in constructive speech, speech that builds up, I have to focus on the problem rather than the person, and that necessarily means avoiding ad hominem attack. Now, how do I avoid ad hominem attack? I have to do some positive things. Middle of page 7. I have to think about other people in a proper way, in a biblical way. You see, when I talk, when you talk, it's an expression of what we think. (laughs) You say, no, I know people who talk before they think. So let me rephrase that. It's supposed to be an expression of what we think. And our words derive from our attitudes. Our attitudes, therefore, have to be cultivated such that they are proper attitudes toward other people. That's what I mean when I say think about other people biblically. There's a passage in your Bible where Jesus is speaking, Matthew 12 and verse 34. And in Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when I speak words, those words are coming from a source. And that source, according to Jesus, is my heart. It's my attitudes. It's the way I think about others. And so I say there, you have to think about others biblically. Attitude precedes action. Our words are a reflection of what we think. And Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so I come to my relationships and you come to your relationships in our homes with hearts that are mixed. I have a heart that has within it the capacity to speak good and kind things. So do you. And you did. We do sometimes. All of us can remember at least once we did that. But we all know that we have the capacity to speak unkind and cutting, unwholesome things as well. And all of us have done that. So I come to it with a mixed heart, the ability to do both of of these things. And the words I speak then are words that can wound you or words that can heal you. And I have to deal with the fact that I sometimes speak wounding words in my relationship with those in my family. Did you find what you were looking for, Joy? No, y'all, you good? Oh, you just look, you just came to get food. Okay, we're glad we could help. Later. Goes over here to get bagels. You know? I just have to point that out, all right? And so I have to deal with that. And my words are, and your words are, the result of how, in my heart, and in my attitude, how I see other people. The way I speak is the result of how I see these other people, how I perceive these other people. And how I see you, now get this, how I see you is the result of how I see myself. So I'm, gonna, I'm in a relationship with you, and I speak words that are a reflection of what I think about you. But what I think about you is a function, a result of what I think about myself. And here's what I mean. If I'm prideful with regard to myself, then that 
of necessity affects how I view you. You see, I am, I am the man. I'm the dude. I'm prideful. I deserve whatever it is. That affects how I see you. There is nobody who deserves whatever it is, peace and quiet, respect, any of that, more than, than me because I'm prideful. And that affects how I then see you. If I'm prideful, it affects how I see you such that you are in a position to necessarily provide what I deserve. I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. Now, we, most of us would never say that. But that's what we think. And our words reveal what we think about other people, and what we think about other people is a function of how we see them in relation to us. Well, you're just an idiot. That's what, see, that's why we use these ad hominem attacks. You're an idiot. How do I know you're an idiot? Because you're different than me. What's so bad about you being different than me? I'm the dude. We just, I, do I have to keep reminding you of this? I'm the standard, and you're not meeting the standard. You're an idiot. Don't play these recordings to your children. Pride, then, lurks in my heart and manifests itself in the way I speak to and about you. And it's rooted in how I see myself. If I'm selfish, I want, you should deliver. You don't, I speak accordingly. How I speak to you is a function, a result of how I see myself. Now, conversely, if I am humble, if I have an attitude of humility about myself, will that profoundly change the way I talk to and about you? So you guys see that the words that come out of our mouths are what Jesus said, lo and behold. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what's lurking in my heart in terms of how I think about other people, particularly these people within my home, is going to affect then what comes out of, of my mouth. And how I think about them is related to how I think about myself. We must think about others biblically. And so I have A and B there. Thinking about them biblically means remembering that they are entitled to respect. And so ad hominem attacks and saying things like you're an idiot is a violation of what God has made them to be and made you to respect with regard to them. They're made in his image. You are not to destroy with your words what God has made in his image. You can't use that kind of unwholesome tear-down talk, Ephesians 4.29. So I have to practice thinking about people biblically, which means remembering they're entitled to respect. Secondly, remembering that they are unfinished products. They're going to blow it as you blow it. And you've got to remember that their blowing it is not worse than your blowing it. They're an unfinished product before God, just like you are an unfinished product. And if I'll bear in mind those kinds of biblical thoughts and attitudes, it will affect the words that come out of my mouth in my interaction with those in my home. So I have to think about others biblically if I'm going to focus on the problem rather than the person. Number two, I have to be willing to focus on myself first. Now, if I've got this prideful attitude, that ain't going to happen. Forgive the grammar, right? We're not going to focus on me because we all know what the problem is. The problem cannot be moi. The problem must be you because we all know who I am. 
But I have to then have this, cultivate this humble attitude with regard to myself. It affects then how I see you, and it allows me to do number two, be willing to focus on myself first. Recognizing the fact that I come to this relationship with baggage and with, with sin that manifests itself in our interaction. My attitudes towards you, my words towards you, my actions towards you. And so I'm willing to focus on myself first. So I say, whenever there's an issue that arises between two persons, the Bible commands that we initiate reconciliation, whether we're the offender or the offended. You've got Matthew 5, you've got Matthew 18. Each of those, one of those involves you being the offender, one of them involves you being the offended, but the command of Jesus is the same. You take the initiative to focusing on reconciliation. Now, notice the practical effect of that. Not only is that a matter of biblical obedience, it has a very positive practical effect of initiating a focus on the problem rather than on each other. Rather than pointing the finger in opposite directions. Isn't that the way it... So they're pointing at you, you're pointing at them. Rather than pointing the finger in opposite directions, namely at each other, this causes both parties to point in the same direction. You. The other party is always already perfectly willing to point the finger at you. If you have a humble attitude that says, let's do that. Let's focus on me. Let's look at me. We are now concentrated in the same direction. So rather than having opposing ends here, okay, let's deal with me. I have, I have enough humility to say, I know I have problems. I know I sin. I know I struggle. And I want to get that right. Let's talk about me first. Now, in turn, last line, bottom of page 7, very often that creates a willingness in the other party to evaluate himself. Now, notice the words I use, very often. I don't say invariably. If you cultivate this humble attitude, which is what we are commanded by Jesus to do, so you do it no matter what the results, but if we do that, it very often has this very positive practical result that the other party sees that you're not just trying to win the argument, you are not in pride simply trying to demean them, but rather you really do want to improve and progress yourself personally and see the problem fixed as far as it depends on you. And that often has a positive effect on the other person, often, very often, but not always. You can't control that, which is related to the top of page 8. I have to, if I'm going to focus on, if I'm going to engage in constructive speech, then I have to focus on the problem rather than the person, and I have to be proactive but rather than reactive. And this whole thing is, is related to the concept of two circles that each of us has, circle of influence, circle of concern. So I can, in humility, say, let's focus on me, and I can pray that God will use that to have a positive effect on the other party. Often it does. Not always. I can't control that. So I have to deal with only the peace that I can deal with, that I can control. And that's me. And so I have to then know the difference between what I call the circle of influence and the circle of concern. Some of you have heard me say this before. But every one of us has these two circles. Stuff you're concerned about and stuff you can actually affect. 
stuff I'm concerned about is a big circle. I'm concerned about Greece going into bankruptcy and the ripple effects in markets all over the world. I'm concerned about that. You know what I can do about that? Nothing. I'm concerned about the war in Afghanistan and the people we have fighting over there and the loss of life and, and all of that. But, but what can I do about that? Nothing. I'm concerned about world hunger. Right? Now you can bring stuff closer to home that I'm concerned about and that you're concerned. I'm concerned about lots of things. If your circle of concern is the same as your circle of responsibility or influence in your mind, you'll go nuts. And, and you probably know people like this. Everything that they're concerned about, they also feel like they're somehow responsible for. And they lay awake at night. And they got just stuff hanging over their head all the time because there's just all this stuff going on. There's just not enough daylight to take care of all of the problems that have to be taken care of. They're everywhere. We're surrounded by all of these problems. What are we going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a nap. And it's not that I don't care. I am concerned. But my circle of concern is not the same as my circle of influence or responsibility. I'm concerned about how my spouse talks. And I have influence that I try to exercise on him or her. But can I ultimately control that? Of course, the answer is no. And so I'm going to, in all areas of life, have to ultimately be content with exercising my responsibilities before God in the small circle of responsibility that he has given me. And then praying that he will use that and other means to affect change in those I can't control. That's what I mean by circle of influence or circle of responsibility versus circle of concern. So we all have a circle of responsibility. Things we can affect change in. That's a circle, but then there's this outer circle, larger circle, within which that is contained, called the circle of, of concern. Now, we can do this. We can engage in this proactive, rather than just reacting to what other people do, just proactively worrying about what God has given me responsibility for. I can do this because, one, unlike robots or animals... We can control our own initiative, but also, I say, there are our own responses. So we are not like animals that are just stimulated by outside stimuli. You push the right button, and they react. Now, I don't have a dog. Some of you have dogs. So you know that if you put a Dog, there are certain things you can just externally cause the dog, stimulate the dog to do, right? And so you can train the dog to react to certain sounds, get the dish out, the dog comes running. People who are really good at it. I saw a guy years ago, he had this dog, and he goes, watch this. It was really cruel, but it was pretty cool too. He goes, watch this, and he has the dog come. He's got his, the dog's dish out there, but he had trained the dog not to take a bite out of the dish until he said the word, okay. And so this dog comes, and the dog's about a foot away from this dish. And the dog's looking up at him, waiting for him to say, okay. And it goes for about five seconds and about ten seconds. 
And now, and I'm a guy who really doesn't, frankly, care that much about dogs. But I start to feel a little compassion for the dog at this point. Dog's shaking, you know, he can't wait, but this is an obedient dog. And it finally says, okay, and the dog goes. And so you can train dogs to just react to, and that's what they do. It's what animals do. You are more than an animal. You're made in the image of God, and you can respond properly, whatever the external stimuli. That's and one easy way to remember that is, I heard this years ago, take the word responsibility and, and think of it as you have the ability to respond. You have the ability to respond correctly. So you don't get to say things like, he pushes my buttons. Well, that would work if you were a dog. But you're not a dog. You don't just have buttons that people can manipulate. If you're being manipulated, it's because you're allowing yourself to be manipulated. In fact, I have a saying that I use with folks all the time. If, if whatever con, uh, causes you to lose control controls you. Whatever causes you to lose control controls you. So if I lose it, when you do that, then I'm allowing you to control me. And God has given you the ability to respond, the responsibility to handle the problem as he defines, not as somebody else wants to manipulate. So unlike robots or animals, you can control your responses. And you can respond properly by a number of things here, quickly. Listening before speaking. Now, in order for me to listen to what you have to say patiently, I have to have been cultivating an attitude toward you that stops thinking that you're beneath me. If I constantly think, even if I wouldn't say, you're beneath me, you're not as smart as I am, then I don't have time to listen to your prattle. Because that's really what you're about, prattle. You're about prattle, and I'm about profound stuff. And so I'm impatient as you're talking. Okay, get it over with. Mentally tapping my fingers waiting for an opportunity to say something important when you get done blathering. I have to cultivate the attitude toward you that you are important and what you say is important. And the action that will come out of that is a willingness then to listen and then speak. Secondly, it requires that we be kind. You might jot down Ephesians 4.32, Ephesians 4.32, and here's what that verse says. Be kindly affectioned toward one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kindly affectioned toward one another. Now, I want to give you that line because the Bible says, commands, be this, be not just kind, which you could interpret it as just being polite. So I didn't scream, I didn't swear at you. I said, you're not, you're not as bad as you were yesterday. It wasn't that kind. So, but, but the verse says, be kindly affection. That is, have affection toward those that God has in your circle of relationship. Out of which this kindness comes. So it's not just something that I've practiced to do. I've learned my lines and words of kindness. But rather, those words of kindness need to proceed out of a heart that is kindly affection toward those 
in my home. Thirdly, apologizing, which every one of us has occasion to do if we're willing to admit it. But apologizing requires that I am sensitive to how what I say or what I do or how what I fail to say or do affects you. And if it affects you adversely, then I am perfectly willing to apologize for that. Now, this is an important distinction. Notice letter E is forgiving. So C is apologizing. E is forgiving. You thought those were the same thing, but they're not. Apologizing is for accidents. Forgiveness is for sin. And the truth is there are things that I do that I didn't intend to do, but nevertheless, they hurt you. Or they were perceived by you in a way that was hurtful. I care about that. I'm sensitive to that because I care about you. And if that's the case, even if I didn't sin, nevertheless, if it caused you difficulty, I am perfectly willing to say I am sorry about that. I mean, it's as simple as if I bump into you and the stuff that you were carrying drops to the floor, I didn't intend to tackle you. I didn't tell somebody, watch this. It was an accident. Nevertheless, I'm sensitive to the fact that this accident caused you some difficulty. And so I say, I'm sorry. And further, I'll help you pick it up. So we apologize regularly and we say, I'm sorry. We keep our promises. Keeping promises includes things like punctuality. If I say I'm going to be there, I'm going to do my level best to be there. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do my level best to do it. If I fail to be there or do it because of circumstances out of my control, what will I do? See the point right before it. I'll apologize. I won't take the attitude that says, tough, it's out of my control, you're going to have to get over it. No, I'm sensitive to the fact that, that I said I was going to do something and I didn't do it. Even if I was unable to do it, then say that. I am sorry. Here's what happened. I was unable to do it. And then lastly, forgiving. And that is for sin. And when I sin, I ask forgiveness. And forgiveness is a promise to do three things. And so if you care about this and you have a pen, you can jot these down. If you, if you don't have a pen and you care about it, try to remember them. If you don't have a pen and you don't care about it both, then chill out for a moment. And I'll talk to the people who do. But asking forgiveness means three things. One, or, or excuse me, forgiving means three things. When, when I am the one who has been sinned against and someone asks for forgiveness, or when I'm asking someone to grant forgiveness, the granting of forgiveness means these three things. It means a promise to, first, not dwell on this. Secondly, it's a promise not to bring it up to you. And thirdly, it's a promise to not treat you according to this sin. So first, it's a promise not to dwell on it. Secondly, a promise not to bring it up. And thirdly, a promise to not treat you according to this sin. Now, what's the differences there? I'm not going to dwell on it. That's an internal thing. I'm not going to think about it. When I grant forgiveness or when you grant me forgiveness, then you're not going to think about it anymore. You say, does that mean it's never going to come to my mind? No, it's, when it comes to your mind, you're going to put it out of your mind. 
it may well come to your mind. And particularly if it's a very traumatic thing, it may well come to your mind. But when it comes to your mind, you're going to put it out. It's a commitment, a promise not to dwell on it. That's an internal thing. But secondly, it's a commitment not to bring it up to you. Well, no wonder you did this. I guess I should be surprised. Remember when you, I bring it up. But when I say I forgive you, it's a promise not to bring it up. And then third, it's a promise to not treat you according to the sin that I've granted forgiveness for. That means that even either in my words or in my attitudes, I'm not going to hold this against you. Now, we're going to have to finish up with the last point, but the good news is I can do that quickly. But how many of our relationships would be transformed if we engaged in this? I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Confronting you lovingly with your sin against me and that offender asking for forgiveness, and we follow through on those kinds of commitments. Do you know how many marriages are people who are holding grudges still treating people according to the sin that they committed some time ago? Now, one final point on the forgiveness thing is this. I can't forgive you if you don't ask for it. Did you know that? I can deal with my attitude... And I can give it to God. And if that's what you mean by, you know, I have to forgive the offender, fine. But I can't forgive the way the Bible talks about it unless you ask for it. I've had people over the years, a time or two, come up to me. My wife's had this happen to her. And they'll just come up and they'll say, hey, I want you to know I forgive you. And I say, well, you can't. Because I didn't ask for it. Because I have no earthly idea what I did. So if you'll first tell me what I did, then if I did it, I'll ask you to forgive me. But somebody has this thing that they got ticked about, whatever it was, and they've been sinning in their attitude, and then they come and finally say, I forgive you for it. You can't forgive somebody who didn't ask for it. And it goes in both directions. And then lastly, we have to, in our relationships in the home, if we're going to communicate properly, we have to practice constructive speech, but secondly, value deference in our relationships. And here is all that's being said there. And I can wrap it up in two minutes. We're saying there in every relationship, there, is all, there are always roles to be filled. In the home, that is true as well. And the Bible teaches that the husband has a leadership role to fill in the home. The wife is to submit to that, that position of her husband in the home. Children are to obey their parents in the, in the home. In every relationship, not only in the home, though, but in the workplace, in government, in the church, anywhere, there are roles to be fulfilled. And those roles, secondly, on your sheet, always involve authority and uh, submission. Uh, uh, the requirement to submit. Now, the word submit means this. The word submit literally means to place under. That's what it means. Subway is uh, a road under the road. So whenever you see sub, it's under. Uh, submarine, under the water. Submit to place oneself under. And in the case of an authority-subordinate relationship, you are placing yourself under the authority of this one in this position. 
Now, husbands often ask the question, how can I submit to my wife since I'm supposed to lead in the home and she's not? Here's how. And I say in your notes, husbands don't place themselves under the authority of their wife. According to 1 Peter 3, 7, we place ourselves under the needs of our wives. And if we practice that in our homes, wives submitting to the leadership of their husbands, the loving leadership of their husbands, husbands submitting themselves to the needs of their wives, children submitting themselves to the authority of both mom and dad if we have two parents in the home, then you have the makings, the structure for a harmonious relationship in which these rules of communication can flourish. Now, next week, we're going to look at the fact that, in fact, the title of Lesson 4 is this. Marriage is forever. Parenting is temporary. And that, and that lesson is devoted to this, this concept, that before you rear your children and they move out of the home, you have to cultivate your relationship along the lines of what we've already discussed. If you fail to do that, your children will see that, it will make it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for you to have a relationship after they're gone. And if your children see that in your relationship, that you're not cultivating it between husband and wife, then all the stuff I'm going to tell you later that you're going to try to implement is not going to work. So lesson four is a pivotal lesson to transition to what we need to do in parenting. So I hope you'll be able to make it, okay? Let's commit our week to the Lord then. Father, thank you for these dear friends. And their desire to learn of you and what you require of us in our relationships, in our homes in particular. And Lord, as we lay these foundational issues, I pray that you'll help us to practice them uh, in the weeks as we study together. And I pray that as we do that, we'll be able to hone these skills of grace in our speech and in our attitudes and in our actions. And that we'll begin to see fruit, even if slight fruit, but nonetheless fruit, good fruit, godly fruit, spiritual fruit in our own hearts and the lives of those that we are treating in this manner. We ask you to help us as we try to do that then this week. Grant us the humility that's absolutely requisite to seeing ourselves as we are and seeing others as we ought so that we respond in a kind way rather than a harsh way uh, in our pride. Help us to do that because we know it's what Jesus did. And we want to be like Jesus and we want to honor him by emulating so help us to begin that this week. Grant us safety this week in all of our endeavors. And we ask you to bring us back next week for instruction on the marriage relationship. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.